following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. gone I think four out of the last eight Sundays on and off and it's been weird like not being here every Sunday I've really missed you guys I don't know if you've noticed that I've been gone but I've really missed you (laughs) oh thank you Um, so this morning we're going to continue in our worship with the reading of the word and I'm going to read to you this morning um, Acts chapter 8 or sorry not chapter 8 chapter 9 verses 19 through 25 So Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. If you're visiting today and didn't know that, welcome. I'd love to chat with you after the service. I hang out in the back usually. If you want to come say hi, I'd love to meet you. What a day. July 1st, we're halfway through the year, it's beautiful out, and we are smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts, and last week we opened up the story of Saul. I think that the story of Saul will continue to weave through the whole book of Acts, he'll turn into Paul at some point. (laughs) We're not there yet though. Last week, we focused very carefully on this, uh, we might call it conversion moment. I like to use the word metamorphosis, and we looked at that yesterday. The big goal of last, or not yesterday, last week. The big goal of last week was to really, really see how Paul's movement from the way he was into life with Christ was not just a supplemental add-on to an already decent life. It was a total change. And we've talked about that, again, for the past couple of years, how salvation is not moving from just one place to the next, but it's becoming totally renewed. Today we're going to go a little bit deeper. It's not just that Paul is totally changed, but it's, it's how is he changed? What changes in Paul? And I want to look at that story as one that is very relevant to us today because if you're thinking about following Christ, if you're like me, you think about things like, well, what needs to change then? Or do I get to sort of stay the same or 
What's different? Do I just think things differently or agree with things? What's going on? So we can look at Paul's life, and then we'll look at some of the other characters in this story, and I think through the whole thing, you see this crucible of transformation. People are changing left and right now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. As we go into it, and I've suggested if it's a metamorphosis of life, it's a change at the core of who you are. I want to talk this morning about one of our core beliefs, maybe, or way of thinking and acting toward one another. And it has to do with who's worth what. It has to do with favor. At the core of your way of thinking, who deserves good things in this world? Who's worth it? Is it just a blanket, everybody deserves the same? Or are there really good measures for us to look at to say, well, this kind of person deserves to have this. This kind of person, however, does not. This person has made the grade. This person hasn't gone through the process yet. How do we value one another? How do we value ourselves? And what is our primary hope? You look at this world and you see school shootings. You see constant vitriolic political debate. You see constant crime. You see constant brokenness and corruption and dissolution of things that are good. Things don't, you don't look at this world and say, by golly, we're nailing this. We have got it dialed. You kind of look at it and you say, boy, There's something here that really upsets me in the deep place of my heart and soul. And when somebody or something upsets you in the deep place of who you are, what is your next instinct? I want to stop that injustice. I want to put an end to this oppression. I want to bring what looks to me like it is out of control under my control. And then something else happens to us. We start to favor people that are either just like us or within our control. I'm more drawn to somebody who does what I say. (laughs) When people don't do what I say or want or think the ways that I think or want, I kind of just want to either fight them or run away from them. How do we value people? What is our hope in this world? Is it to bring things under our control? What do you want to do to the criminal? Set him free or make him pay? What do you want to do to the person who's harmed you? I'll leave it there. We'll keep talking about this. But there's something deep inside of our core, which I don't think is much different than what was deep inside of Paul's core. And when he meets Jesus, a metamorphosis starts on that road to Damascus And it's just the beginning. So today, we get to see the next episode, if you will, in Saul's uh, insane journey with Jesus. If you are on a journey with Jesus, you know that it is insane. While it's also the most reasonable thing you've ever encountered. How can they both be the same? So God gave us the story of Saul, turned to Paul. We know all scripture is useful and teaches us. This story of Saul is really helpful. 
And I think he's going to show us how really believing in Jesus causes us to radically change entirely from our core. Paul did not move from persecutor of the church to persecutor of the church who's now inspired and encouraged. You see? Paul moved from persecutor of the church to full supporter of the church. He was totally changed. If we thought that we could move from being a follower of the American dream into a follower of the American dream who's really inspired and encouraged about it, we've missed Christianity completely and are not paying attention to Jesus. It says right in the title, I'm a follower of the American dream. If we grasp the gospel, we will move from a follower of the American dream to a follower of Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant who never really followed any human dream of the good life. You ever see that in Jesus? Very little of what I am instinctively conditioned to love and treasure and chase and value has no importance to Jesus. <laughs> Very little of what I think is most important, Jesus agrees with. In fact, what he believes is most important, I look at and I say, okay, I know that's good, but man, this is more important, isn't it? Paul had to let go of his dream for the good life and take on Jesus's. And God told Ananias, if you remember last week, Ananias, is looking at God's instruction to him. God had told Ananias, hey, I want you to go down and care for this guy, Saul, the persecutor. You know. And Ananias says, I don't think that's a good idea. That guy is kind of working against what we're trying to do. And God says, I'll show Paul. Don't worry, Ananias. I'll show Saul how much he'll have to suffer for my name's sake. Don't worry, Ananias. Paul is going to totally change. You're going to totally change who you are. It's not a fun time. <laughs> it throws you into total upheaval. Everything is a time of suffering when you're moving toward change. You're letting go of what you thought brought you life before, and you're embracing something new. So he's already preluding. Paul is going to go through a bit of a ringer here. So we saw the beginning of Saul's major life change. This week we're back in verse 19 where we left off. This week we'll focus on the details of Saul's change. And there's a few questions I want you to just be asking as we enter into this story. Just let these mull around in the back of your head. Have I just started going to church to add a little bit of religion and security to an already okay life? Or am I actually being changed at the core of who I am? And in what real true way am I being changed if I am? If I'm not changing, if I'm more or less just staying the same and showing up on Sunday, why is that the case? Why am I static? Why am I holding the line in the same spot? And what does it mean to be living for Jesus for the rest of this summer? What does it mean to be living for Jesus for the rest of this year? How will living for Jesus change my future? This changes Paul's entire future. I want to ask how believing Jesus puts us onto a trajectory similar to Paul. Okay, here we go. 
Go to Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Mackenzie already read the first part of what we'll read today. We'll start in the second half of the verse, and that's where it says, for several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. This is Saul. He had been on the way to Damascus. Jesus encountered him on the road, and now he made the final journey. He's in Damascus. However, he's doing something differently. <laughs> he expected to go up with legal rights to, to uh, incarcerate the believers. Now he's going up to proclaim Jesus, verse 20, and immediately he begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, this man is the son of God. That's a big statement to say in a synagogue. All who heard him were amazed and were saying, man, isn't this the guy who in Jerusalem was ravaging all those who call on his name? And who had come here and he came here to bring them as prisoners to the chief priest? Isn't this the guy who hates the people he's talking good things about right now? What gives? Verse 22, but Saul became more and more capable, and he was causing consternation amongst the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You and I might say, proving how? I don't think he's proving it in the way we might demand proof today in our modern scientific world. But he is, imagine what he's doing there is he is presenting Jesus to these folks in a way where they don't know how to argue against him. There's just nothing they can say. It, it, it actually has the ring of truth that makes sense, and it's frustrating them. Okay, now remember, we are looking at the early days of Paul, who starts as Saul, but it's not Paul writing his own story. It's Luke writing a story. When you look at the letters of Paul and the writing of Luke in the book of Acts, the chronology doesn't jive. Luke tells as a biographer about Paul's life in a way where Paul's own writing and what times and places things happen, they just don't seem to fit. And this is a great case in point. As you read through this story, right, as these verses we just read, you get an impression that this is days, not years, right? Then he did this and immediately he did that and then he was in Damascus hanging out. When you go to Galatians, Paul is telling his testimony and he says, this is how I came to know Jesus. And he goes back to the same story and he says, I was on the road to Damascus and I got there and then after that I went into Arabia for three years. <laughs> and then I, or then I went into Arabia for a period of time and then I came back to Damascus and hung out there for three years. So this is a long period of time that's going on even though Luke tells it in a pretty quick way. Paul is in Damascus and then into Arabia for a good bit of time. Why does that matter? Well, I think, it, I think it matters because we see Jesus doing something similar at first glance. Jesus is sort of entering the ministry, and after he's baptized, what happens? He goes out to be with God for a good period of time alone. We see Paul having done something similar in this, in this Arabian excursion. Why does that matter to us now? Well, I want to think more carefully about what it means to change our lives. If we're talking about life change and transformation, and we've seen this dramatic, almost legendary story about Paul hates, hates the church, radical, almost magical change on the road, we might, just start to, we might start developing an idea of transformation that's a little bit too magical, too instantaneous. 
What does it take to die to your former way of life and embrace a completely new way of life? Sometimes I think we assume that a lot more happens in that hour of decision than really does. The day that I submitted my own life to Jesus, which would be April 2004, the day that I did that, that was not the day that I was equipped to preach and teach, not at all. It was also the day that I was fully equipped to preach and teach. You say, what in the world are you talking about? That makes no sense, Tertine. I say, well, we gotta look at it from a couple different angles. It is true to say that upon making a decision to follow Jesus, you are now totally qualified to talk about why you made that decision. You can probably even talk about what it means to you, what you think it might mean to you. You can totally talk about why you decided to follow Jesus. It is equally true to say that you can't teach folks stuff you don't know. You can't give somebody something you don't have. So there is a level of you need to learn the Bible and the scriptures and theology and church history and all that before you can talk about that stuff. But sometimes we, we put both of those together. We say, well, because I can't talk deeply about theological things or exegetical <laughs> you know, input from the Bible, because I don't have all that, then I just need to be quiet. But I don't think that that's fair, and I don't think we see it here. The word euthus, immediately. Luke wants us to see that Paul, who was totally running this direction, changes and is now running this direction, and immediately he starts talking about why he changed directions. So we can do that. Think about it maybe in terms of a marriage, just as an analogy. At the point at which you decide, okay, I'm getting engaged, we're, we're now engaged, you are totally prepared to tell people boldly about your decision, who you're getting engaged to, why you made the call, maybe even the story of how it came to pass. But you're not qualified to tell people about the rest of it. There's so much more to learn. Making a decision to marry somebody doesn't automatically grant you truthful knowledge about that person, about what marriage with that person will be like. You know enough that you're in it and you're committing your life to it, but there's so much more to learn. I think Paul's decision to follow Jesus introduced a life-shattering decision that leads to a metamorphosis we talked about last week. Just moments after that decision, if you will, Paul is immediately equipped to talk about his life and why he's living it the way he is. But there's also much to learn. I think he takes some time doing that. So he spends some time in Arabia, and I don't think he went to Arabia to go to school. I don't think he did that at all. We know he studied under another scholar named Gamaliel. I think he went to Arabia to just, now I'm speculating, but you, we wonder, what was this all about? It's ambiguous in the New Testament. I think he went to recalibrate his life. I think Jesus had to go to be with God to just get serious about what this mission was gonna entail, what he was truly committing to, and I think Paul had to do the same thing. He needed guidance for how to live in a new way that was totally strange to him. Living with Jesus is strange. It's not, it's not simple 
It's strange and difficult and costly. Paul was weighing that, I think. This is not about Paul having to put away his vices to stop being naughty. It wasn't about him having to kind of clean up his morality. This is about Paul having to learn to live and to think and to feel differently about people in this world. He had to learn to think about all that he had learned about life in a very new way. He had to rethink his value system for people. Some are valuable and some are throwaways. Is that true? Is that the way Jesus talks about people or treats people? He had to talk about, he had to think about the ways that he had interpreted the scriptures. It needed to be reframed in Jesus. Paul had now been confronted by God himself. He was told that he was dead wrong about everything. And now he would be receiving the greatest blessing of all time. What? (laughs) Hey, Paul, you're totally wrong. You're doing the absolute opposite of anything that's moral or righteous or good. So here's the greatest blessing I can give you. Wow. Paul's own life is a picture of how God gives grace to those who are not worth it. You give me grace that I cannot afford. Saul had to reimagine human worth because of what happened to him. Not because he read a great thing in a book. What happened to him made no sense in the way he understood the world. If he had been that wrong, he deserved to be treated as a throwaway. And here Jesus is treating him as a brother. His understandings about money and power Government, it all needed to be filtered through Jesus. Jesus now as the king of the cosmos informs what Paul understands about sex. Everything that Paul had thought or known about war, about controlling other human beings with the threat of power and violence, Paul had to look at that, take all he had learned about that and say, I'm gonna submit this to you, Jesus. Do you agree with me 100% on my view of war? And if it wasn't 100%, Paul needed to change. In this way, he's seeking Jesus. In this way, he's seeking the kingdom. I think he could see the fate of Jesus, Paul, and he knew the fate of Jesus anyway. He saw the fate of Stephen, He knew pretty clearly on the front end that this was not going to be a life of safety, (laughs) right? You know, it's about Jesus who got murdered. I watched them stone Stephen to death. Now I'm part of that crew. He's not like, well, I'll be the guy who's safe. He's saying, boy, I'm I'm signing on with a rough and tumbly bunch here. They kind of get beat up. But he knew it was the true path. It was the only real life. So those opening verses of the story cue us to think carefully about Paul's own life. By remembering his timeline, and we piece that together with his letter to the Galatian church, we can see that though this reads pretty quickly on the front end, it's not without the truth that Paul took time to really truly prepare for what he now enters into, which is a lifelong mission to those who previously to him 
had very little to no value at all, the Gentiles. Have you and I taken time to immerse ourselves deeply into the life of Jesus, to take our most basic presuppositions about family, life, government, money, sex, power, all of the things that drive us and are valuable to us, have we taken time away with Jesus to submit them to him and say, show me what I need to learn, show me how I need to change. Do you think the same exact way about the Bible that Jesus does? If you say, gosh, I'm not sure, that's a good humble posture and I encourage you to let that be the beginning of an inquiry. Do I see the scriptures in the same exact way that Jesus sees them? And if you can't say confidently I do, that's beautiful, and it means there's room to learn. Do you think about war in the exact same way that Jesus does? Do I consider these other components of life in the same way that Jesus considers them? Carefully thinking about what it means to live with Jesus takes concerted effort. I think we can spend time like Paul does, and I think it'll help us greatly. So, away he goes. So do we. Let's read it again in verse 23. Now, after some days had passed, right there, that's Galatians 1.18. That some days equals approximately three years, about a thousand plus days. So after he's been hanging out in Damascus for a good solid three years or so, the Jews plotted together to kill him. Verse 24, but Saul learned of their plot against him. They were also watching the city gates day and night so that they could kill him. You know, they don't want him to get away. Keep an eye on the gate and catch him if he's leaving. But his disciples took him at night and they let him down through an opening in the wall by lowering him in a basket. You know, you've got the walled cities and buildings are built right up next to the wall. So this was obviously a window that was up and over the top of the wall and they could just lower him down. What courage we see, yeah? Paul has a tremendous amount of courage, not just to, you know, kind of be under the gun, but specifically to go and minister to the people in this world who knew him the most. You ever think of that? It's easy to go somewhere else and minister to people who don't know you. That's the easiest thing. You want to do what Paul does You change to living with Jesus and you go right back to the exact same deepest, closest friends that you've had and let them see the change. That's scary. That's scary. That's, I think, a picture of Paul who later will say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes I think when we hear that, we think, I can't be ashamed that Jesus loves me and is taking me to heaven. You're like, Oh, okay, I'm not ashamed of that. That sounds great. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what about when you live a certain way with a group of people and you talk about life in a certain way and you talk about God and you talk about Christianity and you talk about the church and you talk about Christian values all in a certain way and then you become a Christian. (laughs) Now when you go back to those people and you say, hey, I was totally wrong, You're also saying to all those people, which by implication means that you're wrong as well, and we see what the Jewish folks are, are, you know, they're not super stoked on that news. We know that that'll be the news, so we oftentimes are ashamed of saying that to our friends. 
That's what I think Paul is talking about when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not, I'm stoked about what it says. It's, I'm willing to tell people what it means, even if it costs me my friendship with them. So he's very courageous. Clearly, Christianity was not going to be easy for him. They're plotting to murder him. And clearly, as Luke says, Paul was showing them how Jesus really was the Son of God. And he was showing it to them in a way that they couldn't refute it. It made sense. It had the ring of truth. So rather than conversing with Paul intelligently, they resorted to bashing him and using violent protest to get their way. That doesn't happen anymore in our world, which is nice. We all talk intelligently like adults about things we disagree with, and for that I'm very thankful. One interesting and helpful side note I want to pay attention to is that if Paul was not effective, they would not have cared. If what Paul was saying was just some sort of milk toast, eh, I like stuff and Jesus is cool or whatever, they would have said, yeah, whatever, idiot. We don't care about you. What happened was he was so clear and so bold and so in the life of people, they couldn't help but to look at it and believe it, and this was really problematic. That's interesting. What is the impact of your life in the world around you? How do the people in my life experience me in my Christian faith? George Bernard Shaw, you might recognize that name, poet, songwriter, he says this, the greatest compliment that you can, if you're an author, the greatest compliment you can get is if somebody burns your books. False Christianity is always safe. It doesn't raise any rabble. It is agreeable. It is very comfortable. Or it's just plain insignificant. Real Christianity is always in peril. It is dangerous. We have to let that sink into our life a little bit. We have to put that up on the mirror and say, where am I at? Am I just letting other Christians do the mission of Jesus or am I part of it? Conversion for Paul is so, it's, it's so much a calling to be on mission with Jesus. All right, Paul was a rabble rouser with the Jewish elite. They didn't like him. That was dangerous. He was also arousing a little rabble with the Christians. Paul's a feisty kind of guy, so go to verse 26 and we'll finish this story up. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he attempted, so he's now down after his three years in Damascus, he goes back down to Jerusalem, and he attempted to associate with the disciples, and they're all afraid of him, for good reason, because they did not believe that he was actually a disciple. Verse 27, you know, that makes sense. I'm not, I'm not, sometimes they'd be like, oh, they're just so judgmental. It's like, no, if I'm a disciple in the town, I'm saying, let's not let the murderous Christian in the room because he's going to kill us. I don't want to do that. But notice the contrast in verse 27. However, a guy named Barnabas took Saul, and he brought him to the apostles, and he related to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Okay, 
Barnabas shows great hospitality to Paul, and he vouches for him. That's a big deal for Barnabas, by the way. He, too, is standing out for what's real in the context of his friends who believe something very different about Saul. That's courageous. So he was staying with them, associating openly with them in Jerusalem and speaking out boldly. All right. Paul has no good reputation with the people, and yet he's been appointed by God to work with these people. Notice how God moves in the grace and the forgiveness of other people to bring Paul into the church. Paul wrote most of our New Testament. I don't care if you've read Paul before or not, you're influenced by the apostle. I don't care if you're a Christian or not, you are influenced by the apostle Paul. What he contributed to this world is massive. What he contributed to the church is huge. And what you see on the front end of his story is rejection by the overwhelming majority of the church and the Jewish world. What breaks him out of that rejection, if not the willing Christian living of three people? We might say to ourselves, how am I supposed to live in this world? How am I supposed to live for Jesus? Ben, you keep saying we're supposed to be transformed and changed. I think I am, but give me some specifics. Well, I'll give you three specifics. Let's look at Stephen, let's look at Ananias, and let's look at Barnabas. Here's Paul, and God wants Paul in the mix, and he wants him to be leading, but the people aren't really having it. Stephen does what? Do you remember his prayer? They're beating him to death with rocks, and he prays like Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And who's in the crowd of persecutors, if not Saul? Stephen starts by breaking the mold, not, God, please bring Paul under your control and stop him and punish him. Please forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Then comes Ananias, who rightly says to God, God, I don't want to go deal with that jerk. He's dangerous and cruel and mean. And God says to Ananias, Ananias, I want you to trust me, brother. I want you to go and lay hands on this man and help him regain his sight. So Ananias forgives. Stephen prays for his enemy. Ananias forgives his enemy and follows Jesus. And then here's Barnabas. All the rest, Luke shows us, are rejecting Paul, but not Barnabas. He follows the call of Christ and with great hospitality, welcomes Paul into the fold. Yes, it's a miracle that Jesus engaged with Paul on the road to Damascus, and I want to suggest to you it is no less miraculous that these three men also are shown by Luke to be submitting their lives to the way of Christ, not judging, not holding hostility, not holding Paul's past against him at all. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Verse 29, he was speaking and debating with the Greek-speaking Jews. They wanted to kill him. When the brothers found out about this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him away. He raised such a ruckus in Jerusalem that they had to get him out of there, and they do. And because of that, a peace comes into the land, verse 31, living in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Spirit, the church increased. People were included into the church community, into the life of Jesus himself. Paul's teaching and his preaching sparked all kinds of problems with the Jewish leaders. His own history sparked all kinds of problems with the Christian community. 
So we see a man who enters a gnarly spot. He's totally alone. But Jesus is with him, as one of the songs we sang this morning emphasized over and again. All of that insecurity, all of that instability that he raises by staying true to Jesus does not end in loss. You ever think of that? Man, if I'm going to live right for Jesus, it's going to raise a whole big, huge ruckus. Yeah, (laughs) welcome to the story. That's the pattern. But it doesn't end that way. It doesn't end in loss. The church increased in numbers where you would think by all rights, it wouldn't. This happened not because the church offered safety to people. Think about this in our world. People didn't start coming to the church in the first century because it offered them a safe place to worship. It wasn't because church offered a nice supplement to an already good way of life. It happened because God included the opposition. God brought in Paul, the opposition. He included the Gentiles, the opposition. That inclusion is at the heart of Paul's great metamorphosis, his change. He went from I need to exclude to stay safe to I need to include to have life. Keep away the evildoers, punish them, protect from them, make them pay to love your enemies, forgive them and pray for them and welcome them into the life of God. This is a total change of perspective. I am convinced that today we need to allow Jesus to revolutionize our understanding of American evangelicalism. Paul didn't stop being Jewish, but Jesus revolutionized to him what it meant to be Jewish. We don't need to stop being evangelicals per se, but we need to let Jesus revolutionize what that means. Because it does not mean a lot of what we think it does today. Paul now regards Jesus as the center of all life. He is the fulfillment of everything God promised. God said, I will remove idolatry from you and restore you fully. Paul had thought that means that it's our job to punish the idolaters and get them out of the way so God could come. Now he knows it's actually Jesus who comes. And those who bend the knee to King Jesus step out of bending the knee to anything else. Everything is focused on drawing and inviting people into Jesus' life And it moves away from, we have the law, we must enforce it, this is what will bring life. Later Paul will say, the law was a great placeholder for us, it was a guardian, it helped protect us in a certain way, but it never could give us life. Now he knows where life comes from, it's Jesus. So everything's anchored into him. This was an unnerving discovery for Paul. That's where I want to land it today. Jesus changed the way that Paul read the Bible. He changed Paul's understanding of morality, of theology, and I think here is the absolute bombshell of what happened there in Damascus and what changed Paul's life completely, and it can change yours if you think about this carefully. There's a scholar named John Barclay. He's a great scholar. He writes this. If his persecution, Paul's, of the church which he had thought was 100% right, was in fact 100% wrong. And if God revealed Christ and called Paul 
despite such a fundamental sin, it was clear that God's grace was not given on the basis of human worth. You see? This is the, this is the crux of Paul's change. God gave him the most precious gift possible while he was still totally sinful, while he was 100% wrong. How do you and I feel toward people we know are 100% wrong? How do we feel toward ourselves? Do we ever think we're 100% right? My God, I hope not. This is an amazing, not only does Jesus' blood and death and resurrection save us in terms of great end times and eternal realities, but Jesus' way of life saves us from the vitriolic, desperate exhaustion that we must bear if we think it's our job to control everybody, judge everybody, and make the evildoers pay. What a freeing way of life it is to step into it, to say, God, you're the judge. God, I am broken like every one of my brothers and sisters. God, thank you for favoring me before I ever deserved it. In fact, I still don't deserve it at all, and you favor me each day. What a freeing way of life it is to look at all of the brokenness around us and trust that Jesus is healing it. Ananias, Barnabas, Stephen, by all rights should have wanted to see Paul stopped. And I think they wanted to, but they trusted that Jesus would do what he said. Do you and I? It's an unnerving discovery to think that God favors us. It sounds good, but it's unnerving because it means that God right now is with you and he thinks of you. I, don't, I can't even put it to English words. You're so infinitely valuable to him. And so are the people that you think aren't. And if you can start to think of people in that way, men and women, I swear to you, it is freeing. It is freeing. It's an amazing thing. My friend Paul Pastor says, if you don't like unworthy people, then you're going to hate heaven. Okay? Let's start loving one another in this room, even in our unworthiness. Let's start to, this is hard to say, but let's start to, or let's, let's stop belittling ourselves and hating ourselves. Oh, I'm not measuring up. I'm not worth it. I'm not what God wants. And start to preach to ourselves what Jesus preaches to us, which is, I do want you. I am God's beloved son or daughter. Let that word of God change your heart and soul. And let me pray now, or I'm going to preach until the end of the day, and then you'll be mad at me. Oh, Father, thank you so much for loving us. I, so in this moment right now where I think about it, yet again, I'm, I'm at a loss for words, which is rare for me, as you know. But help, help us to, to understand your love, not in a way that just makes sense, but in a way that changes us. Set us at ease. Bring us into peace. Help us to know and truly believe and trust that you favor us when we are not worthy. That it isn't something great we've done that makes you like us. And therefore, when we haven't done well, we know you still love us. 
I pray that that would govern our lives far more than any other desire. A desire to be with you and a desire to live as though we are with you right now because we know we are. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.